Today we want to explore the traitor known as lust. Before we get to today's episode, I want to thank you for listening to Bible Threads as part of your faith journey. It means a lot to me as well as to the entire team at Time of Grace. At Time of Grace, we have the privilege of sharing the good news of God's amazing grace through multiple communication streams. There's Pastor Mike's weekly video messages, Grace Talks videos, daily Grace Moments devotions, printed books, Bible studies, and journals. Then, of course, we have seven different podcasts, all delivering a message of God's grace. I also want to thank those of you who support this ministry. Your generous gifts make it possible for us to reach people around the world with the message of Jesus' love. So thank you. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. Okay, let's get started. When it comes to the deadly sin of lust, the Bible speaks of it in really two ways. In a general way, to refer to any overwhelming desire or craving, and in a specific way, referring to unrestrained sexual craving. Since the Bible addresses both, we will too. Now, we need to keep in mind that God created human beings with a strong sexual desire that God designed to be expressed only in marriage. When this sexual desire shows up outside of marriage, that's where you will find lust at work in the hearts of people. The Apostle John in his first New Testament letter has three sentences tucked in the middle of chapter 2 that clearly contrasts the love and lust of the world with the love for God. Listen to what John wrote. He said, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. Isn't that powerful? The contrast couldn't be clearer between the cravings for things in this world and our love for God. The reality is that they have nothing in common. Lust is all about self-gratification. It often leads to destructive actions in order to fulfill those cravings and with little or no thought given to the consequences. Lust is a powerful human emotion that is a first cousin to both selfishness and greed. Lust, like the other deadly sins that we've been examining, has its origin in the sinful human heart. And the Bible never, ever speaks positively about lust. It's always seen in a negative light. 
The word lust shows up in the Bible around 30 times, depending on the English translation you use. In those 30 occurrences, we find a dual thread weaving through them. One thread exposes lust as sexual immorality. The other thread exposes lust as idolatry. So let's take a look at some of these 30 occurrences of the word lust in the Bible and see what we can learn from them. The first time the word lust occurs in the Bible involves putting tassels on the garments of God's Old Testament people. (laughs) I'm serious. How about we let the Lord God explain? The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments with a blue cord on each tassel. You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God. So the Lord God gave the Israelites a memory device, a.k.a. a mnemonic device. Every time an Israelite was tempted to lust after the desires of this world or chase after other gods, the tassels on the person's robe should have been a reminder of the God whom they served. This was a specific warning against idolatry. Our next example of lust comes from the life of Job. As he was attempting to justify his innocence to his friends, he made this unusual statement. He said, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a young woman. How many times have you made a covenant with your eyes? You know, it's not an expression we typically use, but we get the point he's making, right? Often the, often the lust of the heart is ignited by what we see with our eyes. This was a specific warning against adultery. King Solomon, in his book of Proverbs, has a lengthy section warning against committing adultery. Let's look at a few of the verses in this section. Solomon wrote, My son, keep your father's command and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Bind them always on your heart. Fasten them around your neck. When you walk, they will guide you. When you sleep, they will watch over you. When you awake, they will speak to you. For this command is a lamp. This teaching is a light. And correction and instruction are the way to life, keeping you from your neighbor's wife from the smooth talk of a wayward woman. Do not lust in your heart after her beauty or let her captivate you with her eyes. Solomon reminds us that when we stay true to the Lord's design for sex and marriage, we will avoid the temptation to commit adultery. The next two references to lust come from Isaiah the prophet in chapter 57. 
The language of this chapter might lead us to think that the lust refers to sexual immorality, but the context makes it clear that the prophet is condemning those who lust after pagan gods, idolatry. Listen to Isaiah's harsh condemnation. Are you not a brood of rebels, the offspring of liars? You burn with lust among the oaks and under every spreading tree. You sacrifice your children in the ravines and under the overhanging crags. By the way, child sacrifices were part of the worship of the pagan Canaanite god Moloch. Sadly, there were even two kings of Judah who practiced and allowed for child sacrifice, King Ahaz and King Manasseh. Back to Isaiah. The idols among the smooth stones of the ravines are your portion. Indeed, they are your lot. Yes, to them you have poured out drink offerings and offered grain offerings. In view of all of this, should I relent? You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed, you climbed into it, and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love, and you looked with lust on their naked bodies. Now, let's explain this. When God gave his law at Mount Sinai, he directed every Israelite home to have a box attached to the doorpost or to the doorframe of the house. The box was to contain small scrolls of God's Old Testament law, for example, the Ten Commandments. The box was called a mezuzah. This is what God told the people of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts, impress them on your children, Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. And this is the key part. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. Now the people of Israel who Isaiah was condemning had hung pagan symbols on the back of their door and doorposts. This indicated that despite what was outside on the doorpost, the inside of their homes were places of idolatry. Here's a question for you. Why does Isaiah, as well as other authors of the Bible, use language about sexual immorality to describe idolatry, idol worship? Have you ever thought about that? Now, I'll answer the question when we get to the numerous references of lust in Ezekiel's prophecy. But first, there are two brief references in the book of Jeremiah that address the moral decay of the people of Judah. On one occasion, the Lord God told Jeremiah to walk the streets of Jerusalem. What he found were houses of prostitution and adulterous affairs being commonplace. On another occasion, Jeremiah spoke a word of prophecy that the Lord God was soon going to send the people of Judah into captivity because of their adultery and prostitution. On both occasions, 
Jeremiah likened the Israelite men to horses who were lustfully neighing for another man's wife. In the years leading up to the Babylonian exile, God's chosen people had abandoned their worship of Yahweh and were living immoral lives, characterized by both the general and specific definitions of lust. So to our question, why does the Bible use language about lust, sexual immorality, adultery, and prostitution to describe idolatry? The worship of idols. It seems on the basis of the biblical text that there are two reasons, both of which have a connection with the other. Let's turn to the prophet Ezekiel to explore this further. Keep in mind that Ezekiel was a prophet in exile. He did his work among the exiles scattered throughout Babylon. Ezekiel's prophecy, which is a fairly long book, is divided into three sections that reveal how Ezekiel's mission changed over time. In the first section, Ezekiel brought a message of impending judgment on God's people because of their rebellion against the Lord God, Yahweh. The second section are prophecies against seven nations, which were hostile enemies of God's people who had led them astray. The third section speaks about restoration of God's people, showing God's mercy. In this final section is where we read about the familiar story of dry bones in the valley coming back to life. That's the picture of God's restoration. In the first section of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel describes graphically what God's people were guilty of that was going to result in judgment upon them. Now, just a heads up, the book of Ezekiel, especially chapters 20 to 24, are for mature audiences only. In chapter 6, Ezekiel summarizes what the main point of contention that the Lord God had against his people. He said, Then in the nations where they have been carried captive, those who escape will remember me, how I have been grieved by their adulterous hearts which have turned away from me, and by their eyes, which have lusted after their idols. They will loathe themselves for the evil they have done and for all their detestable practices. The Lord accused his chosen people of adultery because of their idolatry. In chapter 20, Ezekiel declared impending judgment because they had not obeyed my laws but had rejected my decrees and desecrated my Sabbaths, and their eyes lusted after their parents' gods. Here's the key point. Out of all of the nations in the world, the Lord God chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to be his special people. The Lord God had a covenant relationship with the Israelites, unlike any other relationship he had with any other people or nation. So when God's people rebelled against the Lord, it cut right to the heart of God's intimate relationship with his people. The rebellion of God's people was like them committing adultery. Or, think of this picture from the New Testament of a bride and a bridegroom. A bridegroom is used as a metaphor in the New Testament for Jesus. And the bride is a metaphor for his church 
all those who put their trust in Jesus. So the reason for why the Bible uses sexual immorality terms to describe idolatry is because idolatry is spiritual adultery that destroys the relationship between God and his people. The second reason, it seems, is because the idolatry practiced among the pagan nations in the Old Testament had a major component of worship that involved sexual immorality, whether it was the worship of Baal or Asherah or Moloch or any of the other pagan gods. As the first section of Ezekiel is wrapping up, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel with a story about two women. They were sisters of the same mother, and they were both prostitutes. The older sister was named Ahola, and the younger sister was named Oholabah. These two sisters were metaphors for Samaria, the former capital of the nation of Israel, the northern ten tribes, and Jerusalem, the then current capital city of the nation of Judah. Both sisters were descendants of Jacob and his twelve sons. Ohola means her own tent and likely refers to the false worship that the early kings of the nation of Israel had set up in Dan and Bethel. Oholabah means my tent is in her, and likely refers to the temple in Jerusalem. Both sisters are described as prostitutes. Ohola prostitution was with the country of Assyria, entertaining the pagan idols of the Assyrians and establishing political alliances with Assyria. The political and religious alliances that Israel made with Assyria eventually resulted in the nation of Israel being destroyed by the Lord God, at the hands of their former friends, the Assyrians. That occurred in 722 BC, before Ezekiel ever lived. The prophet Nahum lived during the time when Nineveh, the capital of Assyria, was besieged and destroyed by the Babylonians. The year was 612 B.C. Nahum summarized the reason why the Lord God brought judgment on Nineveh, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. The nation of Israel was one of the nations enslaved by the adultery and idolatry of Assyria. Back to the final part of the story of the two sisters. Oholaba's prostitution was first with Assyria and then with Babylon. Again, it involved both the political alliances, which is smacked of a lack of trust in the Lord God, and the practices of the pagan gods. Ezekiel described a similar judgment against Judah as the Lord God had brought upon Israel. He said, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. Since you have forgotten me and thrust me behind your back, you must bear the consequences of your lewdness and prostitution. These Old Testament examples of lust reveal both a general reference to any overwhelming desire or craving, and in a specific way to refer to the unrestrained sexual craving. And interestingly, we also uncovered the intertwined relationship from the Lord God's perspective between adultery and idolatry.
There are two examples from the New Testament that I want to touch on when it comes to the deadly sin of lust. The remaining references to, the, to lust in the New Testament are essentially encouragements to avoid it. The first example that we want to consider is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus elevates adultery to a new level. It isn't just the act of adultery that is included in the Ten Commandments. It is also the lustful thoughts of wanting to commit a sexual sin. Jesus equates lust with adultery of the heart. Then from Jesus' next words, he wants us to take this seriously. Because the sin of lust can be deadly. It can ruin our relationship with others and end up destroying our relationship with our God. You know, I never thought of this before now, but does there seem to be a connection between what Job said when he said, I have made a covenant with my eyes, and with what Jesus said about having our right eye cause us to stumble? Maybe after all, each of us needs to make a covenant with our eyes. The last example from the New Testament is from Romans chapter 1. Today we'd call this a hot topic. In our last episode, we explored what it meant by the wrath of God. The Apostle Paul, at the start of this section, doesn't speak about some future wrath of God, but his wrath that was being revealed in his day. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And just what was the godlessness and wickedness of the people of Paul's day? He explains, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator, who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts, even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Wow. 
God's original design for sexuality was intended for one woman and one man within marriage. From God's perspective, that design has not changed. Yet our culture has hijacked God's design and turned the sexual desire within marriage into a lust issue. Lust actually devalues people and ignores God's design. It is a deadly sin that destroys. As the Apostle John said, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. Think about that. Traitors, more than just the seven deadly sins, they're the attitudes that can betray our relationship with our God, with others, and with ourselves. In our next episode, we'll explore the traitor known as gluttony. If you have any questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and God bless. <laughs>